From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I'm virtually sitting down with playwright, screenwriter, and showrunner Mary Laws. She's written on AMC's Preacher, HBO's Succession, and created a new anthology series on Hulu called Monsterland. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. Hi. (laughs) I want to start at the beginning. So you grew up in suburban Texas. Your parents were ministers. How did you find your way to the arts? Doesn't that answer your question? I grew up in Texas and my parents are suburban ministers. (laughs) I grew up in a household where my mother read to me all the time and there was a great love of literature. And so from an early age, she took me to a lot of dance, tons of ballet when I was a kid, a lot of theater, and I just fell in love. I didn't fall in love with movies. I fell in love with the theater. I fell in love with the live performance aspect of things. And so started doing theater as a kid. I just watched Pin 15 and there's a couple of episodes about middle school theater that just made me absolutely weep because those were my formative years. I couldn't make it in my hometown theater troupe. I never got cast in anything. I think partly because sometimes a lot of kids who got like the lead roles and stuff, their parents were like doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes and giving money. My parents were like, we're not doing that for you. You work your way there, which I have growing up with ministers for parents. We grew up without a lot. And so they really kind of taught me work hard at an early age. And so because I couldn't work with the cool like community theater in my hometown, I like went to the neighboring town where the community theater was full of all these like old hippies who like worked at the Texas Renaissance Festival and they like smoked blunts backstage on their break and they like wore face paint just to wear it. I was just like, this is my family. I'm home. The rest is history, I guess. (laughs) Then you went to school as an actor, didn't you? I went to undergrad and studied performance. (laughs) Definitely there are some YouTube videos of me like singing and dancing that I'm not proud of. I just really was looking for my way in, I think, to storytelling. And I thought to myself, well, I could probably do this, that, or the other. I could be a dramaturg, or I could make costumes, or I could be an actor or something. But I never thought I could be a writer, which I really wanted to do. I just admired them so much, and I thought they were so smart. It was hard to finally admit to myself, well, that's the thing that I've always wanted to do. And all of these other avenues have just been me getting to that place of telling stories, my own stories in my own words. I had a teacher when I was an undergrad who pulled me aside one day and was like, you would be a half-rate actor, (laughs) but you might be a really good writer. (laughs) But I needed to hear it. And really, truly, from that point forward, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. As an actor, was it heartbreaking to hear? Or was it like, oh, no, wait, you're right. I mean... If I was that teacher, I wouldn't maybe phrase it exactly like that. But um, no, it wasn't. It was like someone giving me permission to stop trying to fit in with all of my other classmates who wanted to be actors because that's kind of your way into theater, right? You're either like an actor or you're a techie. Those are the two avenues. But being a writer, it just felt like he was giving me permission to say yes to myself. And so I took a playwriting class and the same teacher helped me get a playwriting grant. And I went to New York and I wrote some terrible plays and had some staged readings of them. I just never stopped after that. So it was really more permission than anything else. What was the first play you wrote? Oh my God. 
What was the first play I wrote? Oh my God. It was called Fingal's Cave, which is like a cave off of the shores of Scotland. Great composers have written classical pieces about it. And I wrote a story about three people who I don't even fucking remember. Can I curse on your show? Yeah. <laughs> it was like three people like ended up in this cave and they were all grappling with problems in their personal lives. One kid was blind and I don't know, it was very soppy and sappy. It was a short play. I had it read in a festival for the great playwright, Tina Howe, who was sort of like the moderator, the judge of that festival. And it was the most nervous I've maybe ever been to date, even probably more than having a television show released out into like <laughs> the, <laughs> the world at large. I think I was just horrified and she was so warm and so receptive. And she told me, I'll never forget. She said, oh my, aren't you a little girl with a great big cathedral inside of you? And I was just like, oh my God. Those like formative years when you're just starting out, it's so important. It's the most important thing to have someone to say, you can do it. And I feel for my friends and fellow artists who didn't have that because I think it makes it harder. I certainly didn't have a ton of people just telling me all the time how wonderful I was, but like those few that you really remember and you hold on to. Still, I'm a 34 year old woman. This was more than 10 years ago. And then you went to Yale School of Drama. Mm -hmm. I went to New York for a couple of years after undergrad and was so starving, so poor. I worked as an intern at a theater called Rattlestick Playwrights Theater, which is in the village. It's an amazing place. I went there because I was obsessed with this one play called The Pavilion, which Craig Wright, who is also a television showrunner, he had written. And I was in New York in like the sea of like endless possibilities. And I was like, what do I do? And I looked up where that play was originally produced. And it was at this theater Rattlestick. And I was like, hey, are you guys hiring interns? And they were like, not really. And I was like, well, I'll work for free. So I did. I like worked for free and I would like work a job at like hedge funds and I would save up a bunch of money and then quit and then go back to the theater. And I was like writing plays and trying to get into graduate school because it felt like the thing that would open some doors for me, help me find an agent or just get to like practice, meet other people who are impressive artists who were young like me. So yeah, that's what I did. Had to apply three times before I got in, which I always love to tell people, don't give up. They only take a couple of people a year. So if you're looking for a graduate program, just keep applying until they get so sick of you that they <laughs> finally let you in. <laughs> was that like the place? It was Yale or bust? It was Yale or bust. Yeah, I applied to Yale all three years and only applied to Yale the first two years. My third year, I sort of at the encouragement of my friends and parents who were like, maybe third time's not always a charm. So I applied a bunch of other places. They're incredible drama schools. I was really excited about UT Austin has an amazing program, Missioner Center, and there are so many. But for me, I like to think about the thing that I feel like I could never actually do and then try to do it. I think that's how I just live my whole life. It's like, what is something that seems so impossibly out of reach and for me, as like a semi-poor kid who grew up in Texas, who was again like taught by my parents, go work your way into whatever you want to have. I was like, well, Yale seems like something that I'll never have. 
so I just was determined. And I was so privileged to go there and I got to study with some amazing people. Paula Vogel was one of my primary mentors while I was there, who's an unbelievable playwright and person, really, truly has taught me some stuff about being in an artistic community and being in a rehearsal room that I've gotten to take with me into television about what it means to be an artist. I was telling someone the other day how we ran set on Monsterland because I think by and large, we had a pretty happy set, a set where everyone had a voice, which was really important to me. It was really important to the whole team. And Paula at Yale, I remember saying, the biggest ego in the room should always be the play. And I thought that that was really an amazing way to think about like how to bring people together who all have big egos because you kind of have to have an ego if you're like, look at me, listen to my story. You have to have a little bit of that if you're going to survive. But thinking about that in terms of the play, but also in terms of television, the episode and the story that we were telling always got to be the loudest and the most needy and the most vocal thing rather than any of us who were creating it. She was just a wonderful, wonderful teacher at Yale and at so many gems of wisdom I hold on to. What brought you to LA and how did you end up on Preacher? So when I was at Yale, I had a playwriting agent who was like, hey, have you ever heard of this guy, Nick Reffin? He is a film director and he's looking for someone to write a horror movie with him. And I threw your name in the pot and he liked your play and he wants to meet with you. And I was just like, what is a film? <laughs> you know, I like, I'd never ever thought about, <laughs> I don't even have Final Draft, <laughs> which is the program you use to write a film. I was like, I don't know my ass from my elbow, but I met with Nick. I'm not a cinephile at all, but he had directed this movie that I really loved called Bronson, which is so innovative in terms of its production design. Like the whole thing is shot in one house and it looks like you're going all over the country, all over the world. It's really fantastic, but it is also so visceral. It felt like it was jumping out of the screen at me in this way that I had only ever experienced that kind of feeling in theater. I was like, sure, I'll talk to him. And I talked to him. I had like a conversation with him for an hour and a half one day. And he was like, hey, do you want to write this movie with me? And I was like, yeah, sure. You seem really cool. It was such an unusual Hollywood experience. It feels almost unfair because it doesn't happen that easily for a lot of people. But, you know, I wanted to be a playwright. Like, I, it wasn't what I wanted at all. It just felt like a really interesting opportunity. And so I said yes and came out to LA and I worked for like a year with him. It was like one year and we wrote a script together and then the movie went into production and was released like a year later. It was very fast. And it was really exciting because he was just like, I want to make a movie that's not like any other movie. And I was like, well, that's great because I don't know how to write a movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, aren't movies supposed to have like three acts? I think I heard that once. That seems boring. Ours should have four, you know? And he was so game and I think really wanted someone to partner with him on the film that didn't know how to do things right. Our movie was called The Neon Demon and it was a wonderful opportunity to like explore the horror genre for the first time. And I just sort of fell in love because the movie is about femininity and the male gaze and about what women then do to each other as a result of being subjected to the male gaze for so long. It's about models in LA who <laughs> eat themselves alive, literally. But like, I just thought, wow, what a great opportunity for me, who is not a model, but who is a woman to talk about what it feels like to be objectified and hurt by men in the world and by the patriarchy 
patriarchy and by the way that people talk and look at my body. And I sort of just fell in love with the horror genre. But that's why I came to LA. And I had such a good experience working on that that I was like, maybe I'll just stay. (laughs) I watched it last night, actually. It's a very upsetting movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not nice. I think it's a really great marriage of Nick and me, like my outlook as a woman and then Nick as a man. It's a movie where two contradictions sort of bump up against each other a lot. Had you co-written before? No, I never had. I had never even thought about it, but I love it. I love writing with other people. If it's a really good fit, I think it's maybe even more magical than writing by yourself sometimes. It was so wonderful working on Preacher. And then I worked on Succession for a season. And now this show, my show, you know, I love getting to hear other voices sort of bounce up against mine. It's like that thing. What's the the thing um, about marriage where it's like marriage should be like two rocks in a tumbler, like shaking around, making each other smooth, which I think is so wonderful. And I think it's the same thing about co-writing. It's just like you put like two people in a jar and you shake them around and you end up working out the kinks and the bumps in each other. And I don't know, you like make a baby together. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of mixed metaphors going on. (laughs) So when the baby was a TV show for Preacher and Succession, which swept the Emmys, so congratulations on that. Moving from theater to film to TV, what was the experience like? How did it change the way you approach your writing? Well, I think that there was something inside of me that I was more able to tap into in television writing and in cinematic writing, which is like a visual kind of storytelling that you can get in the theater world, but not with such frequency. Television is a visual medium, period. Film is a visual medium, period. The best films, you can watch them with the sound off and you still know what's happening. And that allowed me to flex a different kind of muscle. I'm certainly not by any stretch a visual artist. I can't draw a doodle to save my life, but I have something in my head. And I think being able to put that down on paper and then have collaborators bring that to life is so exciting to me. And so I think the switch from playwriting to television, because I really rarely write plays anymore. And for a while, guilted myself about that and don't anymore. I think this is a medium that is much more suited for me. And I think a lot of it was about being able to hone and use the skills of structure and character development and dialogue that I really got from my theater background in addition to this visual language that is just so thrilling. For Monsterland, I was really obsessed with the photography of Gregory Crudson and Todd Hito. And so a lot of the images that are in the series were inspired by that kind of visual art. And that just feels like something that, again, you can certainly have an interesting visual landscape in theater because you're dealing with real-time space. But I find that it's such um, an exciting space to play with visual language in, in film and television. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
So, Monsterland, your first time as a showrunner. It's interesting, though, that you say, like, this is a better landscape for you, because it feels to me like an anthology series like this is just a series of one-act plays, kind of. Yeah. What was the experience creating your first show? Oh, it was stressful. (laughs) (laughs) I came to LA and sort of fell in love with the film and television industry. And it was, again, that thing, like, I'm going to get into Yale no matter what. I was just sort of like, I want to run a show because that seems really hard and like something that they wouldn't let a young female 30-year-old lesbian do. (laughs) So I was like, I want to do this. And it's been possibly like the biggest experience of my life. It has stretched me in ways that are unimaginable because as a showrunner, you're not just a creative voice. You're not just a writer, but you're a producer and you're a champion of others. You pave roads for other people. You have to be a maternal figure, paternal figure at different points. You're wearing so many different hats. And I think navigating that and having to make excruciatingly hard decisions that affected other people's performance and experience on the show and income livelihoods, especially during a pandemic. I never thought I'd run my first show during a pandemic. It's been the hardest and the most rewarding thing I've possibly ever done. The series is based off of Nathan Ballingrud's North American Lake Monsters, which is a series of short stories. It seems that you really were influenced by it, but a lot of the stories were very much your own. What was the creative process there? Nathan's book, North American Lake Monsters, is absolutely beautiful. And apart from this series, which I hope everyone will watch, I I hope they'll read his book too, because there are several stories from which episodes are directly adapted. And then there are many that we did not adapt that are well worth a read. They're absolutely beautiful. I read the first story in Nathan's book and thought, this is what I have to do. It was a really interesting and different kind of horror than I had seen in a while. And it was, again, doing some of those things that we talked about, like really able to tap into character and real issues while all still holding space within the genre. I was really excited about telling stories about complicated people who make terrible or difficult decisions, but aren't necessarily monsters. They're just human. I think that's the way that I have experienced my own choices in my own world and also the different traumas in my life. So it was just very inspirational. And there were some of his stories that we felt as a writer's room were more relevant and more timely than others. And so those were the stories that we really felt as a community of five. We had four writers working on the show with me we felt these feel like stories we really need to put out in the world right now because they're saying something about her current moment or current climate. And so we ended up adapting three from the book. And then the rest are, as you'd say, inspired by, but we had Nathan come into the room with us for the first two weeks. The first two weeks were sort of dedicated to deciding what stories we wanted to tell and coming up with new stories or jumping off of stories from Nathan's book to then create as like sort of the genesis of an idea for a new story. And Nathan was really instrumental in those two weeks. I remember him bringing forward ideas for some of the stories that did end up in the season of eight. So it was really about having a diverse array of characters and also finding stories that felt like they were tapping into... I don't want to say issues because I'm not very interested in writing about issues, but they were tapping into the current world and what people in our lives and in the world were grappling with in the moment that we were writing these. 
we really wanted the series to be reflective of the United States and the turmoil that the U.S. was going through and the different people that it affected. And as a result, how these people were grappling with their own day-to-day lives. I mean, it is reflective of the United States, especially because you have named each episode after the location. What was the thought process behind that? Well, what I loved about Nathan's book also, many things I love about his book, but what I also loved about his book was that his protagonists were not your typical protagonist. They were blue collar workers in the Gulf Coast or single down on their luck moms who don't get written about. And those are people. <laughs> like that's what the country's made up of. You know, we're not a country made up of politicians and billionaires. We're a country of real people dealing with a lot of day-to-day stuff that doesn't make the news and and that doesn't make the next episode of whatever show you're watching. And so I think that naming each episode after a particular city was our way of highlighting sometimes issues and sometimes problems like Eugene, Oregon deals with some systemic racism. And I think you know our episode entitled Eugene, Oregon deals with some of the same stuff, but also just remembering that we are a massive country with pockets of people who are affected deeply by the decisions being made by the 1%, by the people at the top, by the politicians. We're not just a city of Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, there are smaller places that I think deserve investigation. And so that was what was behind naming each episode after a particular city. It felt like we were giving a broader outlook on the United States. The writer's room you compiled had some horror veterans and some playwrights, such as yourself and Emily Kazmarak. How did you staff your room? I mean, kind of exactly like that. I I was like, well, I want to have a room that's Again, like a diverse group of people with different kinds of backgrounds from different age brackets who come from different parts of the world and different experiences. And so that's kind of what I did. One of our staff writers, Alia Brown, had lived all over the world and came to the book with like such a unique perspective. Emily comes from playwriting, as you mentioned. And then two of our other writers, Scott Kozar and Wesley Strick, both had their roots in film writing, but had very different backgrounds and growing up experiences. But everyone had a real groundedness to them. No one was too, quote unquote, Hollywood. And I thought that that was really important in the creation of the series that, again, if we're going to tell stories about real people, we needed to be able to tell them in real ways. And in everyone's interview, I was also really open. I was like, we're going to talk about stuff in the room. I talk about my traumas very openly. I talk about my personal experiences growing up in a really conservative area very openly and my struggle with coming out as a gay person very openly. And so I wanted to open the door to people who had experiences and were willing to also talk about them and go to some really like vulnerable and dark places with me because I think as long as you're doing that in a really safe and healthy way, which I think the writer's room, it's very important to have a really safe and healthy writer's room. I think that's where the really good, good stories come from. How do you create an environment where people are being so open that is safe and healthy? Um, You check in with people. You don't offer judgment on other people's stories. You listen. You make sure everyone has a voice and that if people disagree, they're allowed to say that they disagree. And I think it's really important for the showrunner to do this. I've worked in places with groups of people where the person at the top is not 
accepting or has a judgment that they bring to the room or a point of view that's sort of toxic that they bring to the room. And while I certainly didn't do everything right, there's no way I did everything right. I do feel like I used that experience of like that kind of more negative type of environment and said day one, like, we're not going to have that. We didn't talk a lot about politics we did from time to time, but I feel like politics can be kind of messy in the workplace. And I think coworkers should be able to talk about that on their own time. But we didn't start every day like talking about what was in the news, what happened the day before. I just think it's important that everyone feels heard and seen. I don't really believe in hierarchy within a room other than the hierarchy that I'm the one that starts and stops the show. I'm the one that can shut down a conversation and I'm the one that makes the final decisions on things. But as long as that much is clear, then I think everyone should be able to have a voice and feel seen and heard and and that their stories are going to be protected. If you share something vulnerable, it's going to stay right there in the room and we're going to take care of it and we're not going to judge you for it. We're really grateful that you shared that and that that could become a part of one of our stories if you allow it to be. And it's definitely challenging, I think, to be in a room that vulnerable. But I think as long as you're approaching everything with kindness, I don't know. So day one on set, what was the first scene you shot? And what was it like being on set day one? My God, I don't even remember. I think the very first thing we shot was a scene with Caitlin It's sort of on the docks and she's running late to work and she has to drop her kid off with a babysitter, Denise. The whole series we shot in New York, we shot all over the place. And so we were shooting New York for Louisiana. And so we were out in Timbuktu shooting on these docks and it was so windy. (laughs) And I was incredibly worried about sound that day. I think I was just incredibly anxious in general. It was the first pilot I've ever shot and kept running up to the sound booth and being like, oh, did we get it? What words did we get? What do we need? Um, I think the whole day just sort of went by in a blur. Actually, I think other shooting days feel much clearer in my mind, but it was great. We had an amazing production designer, Ola Maslik, who was able to make New York look like eight different places. It was truly spectacular. So Caitlin's character comes back a few times throughout the series. Was that in the book or was that a tool that you implemented to kind of give it a through line? Yeah, no, that was just us. You know, Nathan's book felt very much like one world. And since we wanted to tell a story about our current world, we were like, oh, what are ways in which we could tie these episodes together? And some of those original ideas sort of fell out the window, but there are definitely some Easter eggs within all of the stories. You know, there are a couple of politicians running for office and there's this disastrous oil spill that's covered in a couple of the episodes. So there are things that pull the series together. Caitlin, I think, being the largest, you know, after she disappears in the first episode, we get to see her again in the middle of the series and then again in the finale and kind of catch up with her as an organizing principal, but also seeing what happens after her sort of disastrous choice uh, that she has to make in the pilot. Do you have a favorite monster? Oh, gosh. No, I love them all. I think maybe the monster I'm the most proud of is the mermaid coming from the theater world. I didn't want to use a lot of visual effects. I wanted to use as few as I could because I love practical theatricality. And I feel like as a viewer, I can tell when something is a visual effect. We're all so used to watching so much that I feel like anyone can tell. And so I was like, how can we make a mermaid that doesn't feel like that? That doesn't, whenever you see 
her take you completely out. So we made her totally practically. And Audria, who played the mermaid, was so game to put on that suit. We had to wheel her around in a wheelchair and have like 10 men lift her into the water. And she was so awesome and would just hang out in this like tank of water while we were shooting other angles because it took so much time to get her in and out. So she would just sit there and with her like head on the lip of the tank and like watch the scene that another actor was shooting. (laughs) But I feel very, very proud. And I think it turned out really beautifully. And we shot that episode in like eight days or something like that. Talking about the monsters we worked with, Greg Nicotero's company, K&B, who does The Walking Dead. And they're just unbelievable monster makers. And so they came up with some pretty cool constructions for us, for our actual monsters. The people are monsters too. But for our actual monsters, we shot all of these. like It was like lightning speed. Our pilot, we ended up having most days, which I think was like 11. But then by the time we got to some of the other ones, we were shooting them in six or seven days, which for a monster show is not enough. (laughs) Hulu, give us more days next time. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com/slash a moment of your time. Because it was your first show running experience. What was the feeling of calling rap on the last day? Oh my God. It was like a blur of emotions. I did this thing, which I'm really glad that I did, where I had someone take a photo of me on like kind of the first major milestone day. And on that rap day, I was like, wow, I have changed so much (laughs) because I think it was like the biggest experience. And personally, it felt like, wow, I had run not just a marathon, but like eight marathons and how much that had taken from me and how much that had given to me. I felt the unbelievable privilege of getting to work with such amazing talent. The production team, especially, I mean, we had the most amazing actors, but I think the production team, I thought these people had just pushed a boulder up a mountain with me and like how lucky I was. Everyone said it was one of the hardest shows that they had ever worked on. I think by nature of the anthology where you're basically doing a total reset every single episode, you're not using any of your same sets, any of your same costumes, and none of your same actors even. You know, Everything is new and starting over is really, really hard because you have to redesign, re-scout. I mean, there are like eight mini movies basically. And so doing that in the amount of time that we had, which was very compressed, our shooting schedule was just rapid fire. And we had no breaks in between episodes. I know like Black Mirror is even able to take some breaks in between theirs. We had no breaks. 
So it was a very, very, very ambitious project. And I was just looking around at the sea of faces of people who were willing to ride that ride with me and do it with so much heart and so much positivity. It just, it was a very overwhelming day. It was a very overwhelming time ending production on the series because again, it, it just felt like we had all run an ultra marathon together and everyone had had at least sort of like one little breakdown and we'd gotten up, gotten back on the horse and we're all still quite friendly with each other too, which I think, you know, everyone would love to come back and do another season. And I think that's really saying something about the kinds of people who worked on this show and the kind of like grit also that you have to have to shoot in New York. We shot in the winter. I mean, just everything hard. We did it. And I'm just completely blown away by the team and will never be able to say thank you enough. So yeah, I guess those are some of the feelings on wrap day. Also just like, where's my martini? (laughs) Um, Can I sleep now? (laughs) Those those things too. What have you taken away from this experience? Is this finding who you are or is this another step along your path? Well, my joke is always like, I want to be Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> uh, I, I would love to have like multiple shows going on at once, but I don't even know if that's true. I'm not sure what's next, to be totally honest. This was a huge goal and a huge achievement and a big milestone. And I think that I want to do it again. It again, it feels like one of those things that felt impossible. And yet I did it and our whole team did it. We did it together. And whether this show, another season or, or another show, I want to do it again because I know I can do it better. What's so exciting to me about television is that you're able to tell stories on such a large scale. I mean, theater, it's like, there's nothing like it. When you see a really good play, it changes your whole life. It changes your DNA. But what I like about television is that you can do that to such a wide, wide audience. And that's really exciting to me because as a gay person, like I have this opportunity now to put more gay people on the screen and to see characters or women grappling with things on screen that I've grappled with in my own life that I never got to see growing up. You know, growing up, we were Huck Finn, you know, or we were Peter Pan. We had to be these male protagonists. And it's such a privilege and an opportunity to tell stories about people that don't always make it to screen. And also, not just people on screen, but behind the screens, you know, like as much as there has been like quote unquote progress in Hollywood, it's just fucking not enough. And if I can do it again and pave roads for other people to then do it again, and bring different kinds of people to the forefront of our minds and imaginations. I don't know. Maybe I'm really optimistic, but I think that's world-changing. I really, really do. Because the kinds of things that you see coming out of Hollywood, that is how you think about the world. That is absolutely how you think about the world. I was talking to a friend the other day about rom-coms. Just generally speaking, rom-coms are always about the straight white girl and the straight white guy. And that that's not how I experienced my romantic life growing up at all. But that's what we're taught. And that's what we see. And that's what comes into our homes. And I think that if you're able to change people's minds on screen and open up people's minds on screen, I think that's world changing. I really do. So yeah, I want to fucking do it again. I want all of my writers to be able to do it then. You know, like I think part of being a really good leader and a good showrunner is passing tools down to the people that you're working with so that they have a roadmap and they have the knowledge to know like, I can do this too. If like this like poor preacher's daughter from Texas can do it, I can fucking do it too. And here's how... And here are the pitfalls, and here's the support that I need, and then I can get my unique and untold story told. Yeah, I'm gonna do it again, and I don't know what's gonna come after, but uh, something. 
So my final question is always, what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? But I think you just answered. (laughs) I think that's it. I think that's it. I'll say another thing too. This is a more personal reason, I guess. I've had a good and privileged life in these 34 years that I've walked on the earth, but I've had some really hard stuff too. I've dealt with my fair share of trauma and I've dealt with my fair share of not feeling like I am the norm because of my femininity or my sexuality. And I think that the thing that has personally saved my life over and over again has been writing about it. That anytime I can put pen to paper and walk myself through my own story, I'm able to see myself a little bit better, more clearly. I'm able to sort of put those ghosts to bed. I'm able to, in a healthy and productive and creative way, work through my shit. Um, And I truly think that that has kept my heart beating. I think that has given me a positive outlook on the effects and the burdens of trauma or abuse that you can actually turn it into something that helps you, saves your life. You can turn it into something good. And so I guess personally, that is why I will keep writing. I always say it's like the one thing no one can take from me. I can be unemployed and I can still, as long as I have a napkin and a pen, like I can write my story down. I can write any story down. And I just think that that is like the greatest gift in the world. It makes every other thing that I've ever been able to do in my life possible because I've been able to write. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. Monsterland is available on Hulu. It is a great show. Very well done. Thank you. It's been so happy and fun. And I have so much anxiety usually when I do these. And it's been such a very easy pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mary. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis. With guest, Mary Laws. Co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted stuck at home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.